0: welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series and joining me today to share the stories behind the 10 books that influenced him on his life path is globally recognized mind body health and wellness expert mindful performance trainer and meditation teacher and trainer David G, who's taught millions of people around the world to heal their hearts plant powerful intentions and manifest their dream lives David G is credited with creating the 21 day meditation process, which spawned hundreds of 21 day meditation experiences and challenges around the world. And he's also the author of several much lauded books, including Sacred Powers, The Five Secrets to Awakening Transformation, and the Amazon bestseller De Stressing, The Real World Guide to Personal Empowerment, Lasting and Fulfillment, and Peace of Mind, to name just two of his titles. Of course, there's much, much more to David G. than that, as we hope to learn as he shares some of the stories behind his 10 best spiritual book choices. Welcome, Um, it's good to have you with us. And before we start discussing your 10 best spiritual books, um, two questions that we always ask. And the first is, what do books mean to you?
1: Um, Well, you know how there's that phrase, um, certain music is the soundtrack of your life. And I think that, uh, for me, uh, books have been that, that soundtrack. And as I've gone through different stages, some books are, like, so important to me. And, you know, I've collected books and collected books. We all have some time, looking at Cornelia's book, bookshelf behind Hark. You know, we all have that. And there are some of those books that, honestly, like, we read when we were, like, 8 or 12 or 18 or 28 whatever that is um, or, or 38 and we've never touched them since because they've woven themselves into who we are um, and every once in a while we may peel them off and go like oh yeah that. So I believe uh, books are portals to awakening and I think that they define uh, sort of like the launch or the the flow of certain periods of our life.
0: Yeah they're like stepping stones aren't they?
1: Yeah, beautiful.
0: So um, how much of a challenge
1: was it for you to have to just come up with 10 books? Oh my God, it was so <laughs> high-stressed, high-pressured um, because, you know, you know, come up with the 10. That's like, what are your 10 favorite songs? You know, it, it yeah. goes forever. And as I said to you, Sandy, you know, uh, I could have come up with another 10 and another 10. Um, but I guess uh, when you first invited me, to come up with my list. Uh, first, I meditated <laughs> probably for, for a half hour, just, just letting go of everything. And then I allowed those books. Some of them are books that I'm, that I'm reading right now. Some of those are books that I've always continued to read. Um, and some of them just were like <sighs> so important. And my original list, when I just figured I'd make up the list, um, it was about 25 books long. And then which is how I write you know I write it all and then um, I refine it and and come down so I felt as I was going through that process I was like well maybe the next time she asks I'll put this on the list but it's not going to make it to the to the top 10 right now.
0: Yeah I've heard this a few times so I think this is one of those things I'll have to go back a few years later and say okay now let's have another list and look at that and I was so interested the first book on your list um, is the Bhagavad Gita as it is. I'm not gonna say the name of the person that translated it because it's uh, unpronounceable for me. Um, uh, I don't know if you want to, but this book, I mean, it's astonishing because you made a commitment to read this book every single day and and you have. And I wanna know what would happen if you didn't read it one day?
1: Well, it's become a beautiful habit of mine. There are certain habits that we say, oh, you know, don't do that habit. You know, and I think uh, once I had heard that Einstein read it every day, I figured, oh, well, let me, I'll be in good company if I can, if I can do that. I didn't intentionally uh, start to read it every day. Um, I, uh, a mentor of mine, Dr. David Simon, and one of his books is on, is on the list as well, but I, um he said, you need to read the Gita. And I was like, I, I read the Gita in college. And he's like, eh, it was a while ago. So go back and read it. And so I sat down and read it. And the translation that I used at the time was Eknath Iswarans, which is a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fairly tight, you know, it's not, not that fat. But over the years, there's been so many types of Gitas just happened to have my rolling bookshelf out here in my treehouse, um, you know. Then I got into this one, which is like the Gita divided into um, two volumes by uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. It's a, it's a fatty. This is one of my my faves as well. But as I continued to read and read and read all these varying translations of the Gita, I realized, depending on the translator, depending on the mindset of the translator. So it's not just someone being able to translate Sanskrit into English. But like, what's their world view? And so that has really uh, made it more profound. This is um, that book, the Bhagavad Gita, as it is, and it's a fatty. It's um, because it doesn't just contain um, the Gita, which is seven hundred verses and eighteen chapters, but uh, it's the sort of like musings and mini translations of um AC Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada which is that that name and so but it's hard to carry one of these around so I then I got this you know which is like the smaller version, uh, pocket version. the pocket version although it's not so pockety it's it's still pretty it's still uh pretty beefy um and I was most touched um because you can read you know, here's here's a copy of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's um, translation. Every translation puts just a little bit of a different spin on the same exact sentence. And when I read this one, particularly in chapter 2, verse 47, um, which I've, of course, I've read thousands of times, and I've read it in, in all different contexts, but there's this one line, pretty much everyone distills chapter 2, verse 47 down to... Uh, you've total control over your own actions, but no control over the fruit of those actions. So we, we pretty much sort of get that. And that's really a very, very important lesson, which really is the guidance is be here now. But then um, in this particular translation, he follows that with never consider yourself the cause of the results of your activities. And just that one, it, that's actually only half the sentence. Um, you know, something else follows, but never consider yourself the cause of the results of your activities. When you read something like that, it really makes you then suddenly think about all your activities and all the things you've taken credit for and all the things you've blamed yourself for. And really all we have is that moment when we're doing that thing, whatever that thing is. And so, um, that particular translation, just because of that one little line, and there's 700 verses there, but that, that one line said, you know, I think this guy really uh, is speaking to me. And I believe that when we read a book, uh, also when we, hear, when we hear someone speaking, but there's this um, convergence. And I believe transformation can happen in a book if it's the right messenger, pretty much that messenger is someone that's resonating with you, at a particular time, you like their writing style or the or the way they express themselves. Um, the message, what they're saying has to click in some way and timing. Mm-hmm. And if one of those three things is not available in that moment, the transformation doesn't occur and the spark doesn't occur. So we've all read a whole bunch of books where we're like, oh, that was interesting. And perhaps if we had read it at a different, moment in our life it would have been the most transformational thing we ever read it was like yeah i like that author i like their style and that was pretty cool but it didn't necessarily speak to your to your heart to your soul in that moment and so i believe message messenger and timing is so critical uh in in everything we read in everything in everything pretty much in, in in every moment but when i was coming up with my list it was, you know, those were the books where the message, the messenger, and whatever it is, I was highly receptive in that moment. And I think that speaks to all of us. If we're, if we're really, really receptive, we thirsty for what that is, it, it strikes a chord and, and, and we're never the same.
0: Mm-hmm. I agree I agree I mean there have been times I picked up a book and went oh, and then a few years later I pick up this book and I don't even know that I picked it up before and go this is fantastic <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you said that you know this epic ancient story impacted you at the soul level and continues to teach you every single day um what was going on in your life at the time that you first read that one
1: well um I have to give, to give credit to whatever the reading list was when I was in uni, uh, whenever I was in, in college, uh, because whoever came up with that list, some of those books stuck with me and some of them I was like, these are the books I will, I will hold on to, you know, these are my seeds for the rest of my life, and I was heavily into philosophy at the time and reading Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Kant and, and, and all these other. And then I started picking up some of these really more ancient texts. And when I picked up the Bhagavad Gita for the very first time, I didn't really know how old it was, but I could tell it was sort of a, a, a deeper messaging for me. And so, you know, I was a you know, 19 year old college student and who knows what our priorities are or what our visions are belief systems you know in that moment and the bhagavad gita really is a story between arjuna presumably the greatest warrior who ever lived and god krishna krishna god disguised as krishna certainly in that in that moment and so for me it was reading the tale very very similar to um Merlin and Arthur, that's, that's, how I, that, that's how I viewed that. And of course, you know, these are themes that have existed for thousands of years in the Bhagavad Gita was written supposedly around 300 BC. So 2,300 years ago, certainly before Merlin and Arthur ever had their combo. And you know, I think what we, you know, for me, what it struck was, oh, there's a wise sage speaking to a conflicted young man And probably at the moment I could really have benefited from that. So I use that as one of the tools to really help give me guidance and the Bhagavad Gita, you know, there are so many answers to questions that we have, but it it sort of forces you to even ask more deeper questions. Mm. Just as you see this going on, you translate it. Well, what about my life and what about my choices and what about the things that I dream and desire? So for me, I was highly impressionable as a, as a young 19 year old read that book. And I was like, oh, and that was one of those books that I read probably for, kept on my bookshelf for about, who knows, two or three years. And then it faded into, into the back and it was not reawakened again until 2003. So uh, I won't tell you what year I was in, in college but suffice to say it was 20 years plus. And so suddenly I was in the same exact space in my life where I could really have used some some insightful wise person to sort of guide me on my next step or guide me from where I was or, or bring clarity to my life at the time. And so then I read, oh, of course, Emerson read it every day. Oh yes, of course, Thoreau read it every day. Oh, and Einstein read it and Gandhi read it. So it's like, Shouldn't everybody be reading this? Wow, that's so interesting.
0: So, when you picked it up again, you know, was it just like meeting, you know, somebody that you knew and loved a long time ago, but had forgotten how much you loved them? And suddenly you rediscover that. And it's just an amazing experience all over again.
1: Yes, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And quite honestly, I was distinctly different. And so was the, the, the messenger, it seemed. And one of the beautiful things about the Gita is that you know, we don't know who, who wrote that. Mm. Um, so here's this timeless story and it's not necessarily about the author, but really the content uh, of the words. And, and that's why we, we develop affiliations to the various translators because they're the ones, you know, we think, oh, uh, I'm reading this translation. That's the person who wrote it. And really, you know, I guess mm-hmm. in a certain context, they, they, they did write it, but the Gita has that beautiful ability to for you to just like thumb through it and then, and then just read a verse and similar to the Bible, I guess, in a, in a sort of way. So yeah. it almost doesn't matter where you are in that moment. You just flip it open and then go like, oh, And then you and then you read the line and then you can just sit and reflect on the line and think about the line. And what does that mean to me? And then you start to develop that that internal conversation. And I believe that as we continue to nourish that internal conversation, it ultimately becomes our our external conversation as well.
0: And do you find yourself being guided to different versions, you know, on different days?
1: Um, well, I, I do, and I still have them scattered around my house. I have um, a Gita in my living room, a Gita in my tool shed, a Gita in my car, which I have not been using as much as I used to. Now I just use my car to go to the supermarket and back since everything's shut down here. Um, yeah. But but uh, I have one in my bathroom. I have one in the kitchen. I have one on my dining room table. I have one in my on my nightstand so uh, i'll reach for them and it's funny oh, over the years i can just pull the geeter read a line and go oh that's that translator because i can tell like who they are and what what yeah. they're trying to to convey so i think that is certainly one of the one of the most profound continuous messages that that continues to nourish me and i've mm-hmm. never picked it up and cracked it open and said huh What does that have to do with me? Uh, No matter what what I pick up, you know, it's like the magic eight ball, you know, (laughs) shake it up a little bit and then you look and whatever. So so it connects to me at, uh, at a very deep level. And I encourage people, if you're gonna start to read the Gita, get a bunch of them. It can be the same exact Gita, but scatter it around. So just before you sit down to watch Netflix, crack open the Gita. Just before you start chopping your onions for dinner, crack open the Gita. Just before you go to bed at night, crack open the Gita. and I, I don't think you can go wrong, no matter no matter where you are in there.
0: Mm, yeah, and and was that your first choice? Was that the
1: first one that occurred to you when you started creating the list? Oh yes, because I like like I said, you know, I this is pretty much where I spend my time in my yeah. treehouse every day, um, staring at the little green dot, and so. Um, so I'm surrounded by probably about 13 different Gitas here right now. You know, there's this beautiful one, and then there's this beautiful one. You know, I can go on and on. Um, and some of them are very, very... So I am, I am a Gita collector. And so um, some of them are, are beautifully, you know, there's beautiful pictures in them. I even have the comic book of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, but yeah, that that is the first one because that I've I've used the Bhagavad Gita um, or it's used me, um, really as a guiding light, and I mm-hmm. think it informs pretty much everything else that I do. Yeah, because if you think about you know this conversation, and and many people have written versions of this over the years, Neil Donald Walsh uh, conversations with God, and so many people, um, you know their conversations with the divine, and so the Bhagavad Gita is that first. Uh, what at least one that, that I touched and going back twenty three hundred years that's that's pretty safe to assume for, for many of us it's a it's a it's a full on conversation with God at a moment um, of conflict at a moment of crisis at a moment where you're at a crossroads and I think we all sometimes on a, on a micro day on a daily basis find ourselves at crossroads and I think on a weekly basis we do as well perhaps on a monthly basis and certainly there are years where it's like I'm at a crossroads here I can either move that way that way maybe even that way and I could or I could go back and then suddenly we start to realize uh, well there's a little guidance here let me let me if I'm going to take a step in in some direction whether it's a fork in the road or a crossroads let me have as much information as I can to help me make the best choice. And I think that's what the Gita always um, provides us with. And I think, you know, you could just pluck a line and and it's pretty much God saying, Well, here's a good way to live your life, and here's another thing for you to think about. And the, the number one lesson of the Gita in every single translation that you could ever find. Um, is, is pretty much the line, uh, don't be uh, overcome by inaction. Whatever your duty is, whatever your responsibility, whatever your charge is in a particular moment, um, act. And sometimes even saying, I'm just going to take a pass here and allow this thing to flow through can also be an action. But essentially what they're saying is don't distract yourself and, and, or, or don't run away from the challenge. Meet the challenge head on. And you may decide to, 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 to fight through. You may decide to move away. You may decide to just be present, but you have to at least um, address. So for someone who's a procrastinator, that would be the perfect book to help you keep going and keep moving and and keep flowing, no matter no matter what. Because you know we all sometimes face a challenge and it's so big, we just like I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm just I'm just gonna I'm just going to to not really take my responsibility in this moment. And I think it encourages us to uh, take some time and probably you know chapter two. Uh, verse 48, where Krishna, God, says, yogasdha kuru karmani, establish yourself in the present moment and then take action. So, you know, a lot of people who are on the spiritual path, you know, they get a bad rap because, you know, people say, oh, well, you just want to sit in a cave and, and withdraw from the world and not have anything to do with it. And, well, no, the lesson is, you know, get still, and then show up and and be your best which yeah. i think is a really important reminder to to all of us
0: mm, indeed yeah so book number two is walden by henry david thoreau also known as life in the woods and that was published in 1854.
1: well yeah and he was 27 at the time um that he moved to his little cabin in in the woods and i uh, I think he spent about two years um really writing about uh, those experiences, and quite honestly he you know, he did what what anyone who has very little responsibility might do you know commune with nature let me uh let me just sit you know I wish we all had that that ability uh to just you know observe drink it in and write and really um, discuss that interplay between, you know, the, the swirl of life around us and our personal connection to our, our individual journey um, in, that, in that moment. And so one of the beauties of, uh, of Wald, or at least how he laid it out is he laid it out seasonally and, you know, he spoke, you know, what, what are the nuances of each of the seasons? And so we've seen this with painters, great painters who painted the same exact scene um, going through each of the four seasons. And of course we can use that uh, metaphorically in our own lives as we go through the various seasons of the year or the various seasons of our, um, of our life. And I think he was uh, very bold in his descriptions and understandings uh, of what was going on because even so withdrawn from the world. And so, well, withdrawn from what we would normally consider our world. He was probably totally embedded with, with the world. Um, but even as we you know, go off someplace to, to ponder our navels and, and see what's happening, Um, The lessons, whether you're living in a high rise in the busiest of places, or whether you're off on some, you know, farm or desert or jungle or wherever you happen to be, you know, cruising around, the challenges are the same, because it doesn't really matter what's happening outside of you as much as all that interplay that we that we take internally. And I think that's you know, that's something that we all need to recognize. Whenever we're starting to think, oh, I'm different from everyone else, we're all the same. We're all thinking about stuff that happened. We're all trying to figure out what our best move would be. Mm-hmm. We're all holding on to a, a regret or a grievance. Uh, we all haven't forgiven ourselves for something or forgiven somebody else. Uh, we all could use a little more love. You know, there's, some of these things are just like, they're, they're just universal. And... uh one of the, just one of those takeaway lines or mic drop lines um, from Walden is when Thoreau says, uh, or writes, you know, um, we loiter in winter while it is still spring. And so I have that just as like a little whisper in my, in my ear, whenever I find myself Uh, suddenly thinking about something that's already carved in stone, it's done. And so can I use it as a tool as opposed to thinking of this thing that happened to me? Uh, How about flip it on its head and make it into this thing that happened for me? And I think we can certainly translate that into what's been going on, certainly on our planet for the last year.
0: Yeah. Indeed, um, you know. indeed. And, and you could say that about several of your books, <laughs> you know, as I was reading through your descriptions, I was thinking, wow, they're all so relevant.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's really the, uh, th- that helped inform my list because, you know, there's a lot of books that I've read and I was like, well, that was, that was good. And, and then I, then I've moved on. Maybe Messenger, Messenger Timing wasn't necessarily there. But these books, you know, all of the books on my list have continued to be um, a bomb for my heart and uh, nourishment for my mind and, you know, deep deep healing uh, for my soul as well.
0: Yeah. Well, to me, that's, you know, that's the mark of a, a really great book is that it never, it's never not relevant. And the wisdom is always useful because it's, it's universal, it's truth. And it never di- dies and it never dates. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So number three is the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. And you say, just pick a translation and begin there. And this too was compiled, what, in the second or third century CE. So-
1: Yes, well, potentially is an interesting character because the descriptions of him, they say he either lived um, 200 years before Christ or 200 years after Christ, somewhere in the, in that 400 years. And so we're like, so, you know, we know exactly where in in our world, we know exactly where, where everyone has, has lived. Um, But that's like saying, uh, did uh, Barack Obama know William Shakespeare? You know, they're like 400 years apart. And so, you know, part of that is amusing to me. There's always been a little, You know, confusion over, you know, when this truly was written, but it is for the very, very first time that someone actually compiled all the components of yoga. And this is also, you know, yoga is is spoken about, and yoga just means uh, union with the divine or oneness of existence. And, uh, of course, in our modern parlance, yoga is the physical you know practice like those physical asanas that we're doing all the time <clears throat> but of course you know going back 2000 years patanjali is really speaking of like no 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 it's it's codes of behavior it's sensory deprivation it's um pranayama breathing practices it's cultivating your uh, attention it's uh meditation and then it's living a life that's fully integrated. Those are the eight limbs, you know, that he that he speaks of. And yet, if you go into a yoga studio, well, we won't be doing that now. But uh, even if you go to a yoga class online, typically, they're not talking about these things. So I've always been struck so much more by the the, the deeper philosophy of yoga than the physical practice. And I'm a, I'm a certified yoga teacher. <clears throat> so I, I have you know taught classes i haven't I haven't taught in the last several months here, certainly, but um well, some people are and i and I applaud you and keep doing that if you're teaching online keep raising keep raising the vibration there but there's so much more to the concept of union of of oneness um, of really seeing ourselves as uh, fully integrated beings that we're not really separate from, from each other and we're not separate from, from anything. Everything is so um, interwoven and that's, that's really the, the number one lesson that potentially teaches us. And he says, yeah, 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 you could live a life where you're fully merged with the universe. And then he brilliantly says, oh, by the way, there's, there's also the life that we're living um, where we feel separate. And where we have all these modifications, and we have memories, and suddenly we're we're drifting into the past, and we're floating into the future, and we're not being present. So I appreciate the fact that even someone two thousand years ago is being so um, so honest, as opposed to this woo woo spiritual concept where you know we're, the answer is you know some mermaid, dolphin, rainbow um, type of type of experience, he really comes so clearly into, uh, well, really what the Yoga Sutras is, is how would an enlightened being live their life? And so it's not, it's, it's not, he doesn't talk about God inside there. He doesn't talk about, you know, he's not talking about conversations with God. He's really talking about, if you want to get to that, that space of oneness, these are the, are the ways um, to proceed. And before that, everything was tribal and everything was just a, a recommendation here or there or part of some type of school. But he pulls it all together and here we are 2,000 years later talking about it, living it, there's yoga studios all over the place, there's yoga, mm-hmm. you know, yoga attire um, you know, as well. And I think it's, it's certainly become a, a, a big part of, of, of our world.
0: Massive, massive part of our world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you said that you know this is a text that you've come back to over and over again to help you understand methods to live your life with greater grace and ease.
1: If we think about like what's like what's the starting point, uh, the very very first um, uh, teaching is Yoga Vritti nerorha That's that's the the second uh, sutra, which is um, oneness. Is the progressive quieting of the fluctuations of the mind so that sort of like sets the table for the entire um, experience because that's what we have to do and it pretty much if we go back to chapter two verse 48 of the bhagavad-gita where krishna says uh, yogastakuru karmani establish yourself in the present moment and then perform action you know they're, they're dovetailed it's, it's, they're pretty much on the same page. And I think that then he proceeds to say, well, here's, here's the foundation. It's not about the physical action. It's not even about meditation. That's coming. But first, we have to, you know, what's the code? And he lays out that code in the yamas, which is the, the first branch or limb of yoga. You know, what are the codes that we're going to live our life by? And that first code is ahimsa, which is nonviolence which is also the Hippocratic Oath, which is the first step that any doctor or physician, the pledge that they make uh, in their practice, first do no harm. So there's so many things that, that flow from this most ancient teaching, and who knows, Hippocrates probably reading the Yoga Sutras at some point. Yeah.
0: And it's a book that is, you know, many people should be reading now every day. I mean, it's something that should be, the kids should be reading in school.
1: Absolutely. And again, there are so many translations and versions. I've seen the Yoga Sutras for kids. I've seen the Yoga Sutras for couples. I've seen the Yoga Sutras for people who who feel disenfranchised. And so many different types of translations um, over the years. So yes, I, I heartily recommend it.
0: Number four is Ulysses by James Joyce, published in 1922 and another timeless classic, as you say, another one that you said that you can, well, we can read over and over and continue to glimpse deeper insights from.
1: Yeah, well, Joyce, you know, clearly, you know, one of the greatest writers of of all existence and not just our time, but, and Ulysses really takes um, the ancient myth, you know, the hero's journey yeah. uh, and, you know, going back to the Odyssey and pretty much takes the Odyssey, uh, the ancient Greek epic, and just transports it into Dublin in a day. And that's, you know, again, I, I guess, I, you know, I'm, I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm suddenly realizing, I guess I like when people um, compartmentalize something into seasons or a day uh, or something along uh, those lines, uh, you know, Joyce goes, goes deep into, um, really into the microcosm of, of what was going on, um, certainly in, in Dublin in, in the early 1900s, what was that mindset? What was that the relationship, but you can see, uh, on, on so many different levels where. There's a hero's journey we have a hero's journey in our in our personal core relationships there's a there's a journey that we're taking um, which really moves us uh, through our careers you know our Dharma or our purpose that we that we find ourselves in in life um, there's that same type of th- journey um, reflecting and trying to help us figure out like what's my place in the world what's really that that you know what what am I here for and how shall I move? And you can you know, take that on a, a micro or macrocosm uh, concept as well. And so the hero's journey really is this journey where we, we feel orphaned or separate from source or something. And there's a, uh, a calling. All of us have heard it at some time, we feel separate. And then there's an invitation. Um, some have said it's an invitation to adventure. And some have said, oh, it's an invitation for a very purposeful journey. And so you head off on, on the journey and we have our highs and lows and our trials and tribulations and our peaks and valleys over that. Uh, you know, these, a lot of these are, are tests that we have. And then um, at some point in our life, if we're fortunate, we will get smacked down by something whether that's a financial loss or a health loss or a, or a relationship loss or a, or a loss of clarity you know in our lives and or we'll, we'll feel we'll truly feel that 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 separation and we're on this journey and we're moving through the journey and as we discover certain challenges and transcend them or trials and and try to fight through them there is that moment where there's a um, some people refer to it as the dark night of the soul but it's really where we come into the abyss where we truly are you know struggling so deeply and we're just about to give up just about to to say you know what never mind w- whatever you know and this is this is you know why why people kill themselves yeah. because in that moment they don't have that that hope, all hope is, is extinguished. And so the her- hero's journey says don't give up hope because when you are in the depth of that abyss, in the depth of your darkness, um, there's a, there's sort of like an aha moment or there's a, a spark. And, you know, we all have to hit that bottom, whatever is different for, for everybody, um, and question everything and lose faith. And do all those things that we do. But then there's that, that moment where we suddenly go, Oh, well, maybe there is hope. Maybe I didn't, I lost faith, but maybe I get it back. And really, this is what Leopold Bloom is, is going through just over a 24-hour period, mimicking the journey of, of Odysseus and you know in, in the Odyssey. And you know, the, the hero's journey ends where you and, and all mythologically the hero's journey, you know, there there's different there's a, an elixir or a special chant or some icon or piece of jewelry, like the holy grail, things along those lines. And you know, you, you say to yourself, I, I there is an answer, and I have found the answer. I got the answer. This is so great. And then of course the, the hilarity is the hero returns to the village with the answer with the elixir with the special tool or whatever that um, the, the, mis- the mystical orb whatever it is and thinking that I will I'll liberate everybody now everyone will benefit from this but of course not everyone's been on your journey so the villagers are not always so receptive <laughs> to the hero's return and then the hero begins to feel isolated or orphaned or separate again and then begins on another journey and so Joyce managed to 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 talk about you know the the Irish people and the Irish mindset of feeling so disenfranchised from you know their lives from 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 their from their history from uh, whoever was dominating them at the time um, as well as individuals as we move through life and he did it on a very personal level and on a a highly universal level, as well, and I and I love that journey from the personal to the universal and back again. That that consistent flow that seems to really move through all aspects of our life.
0: And that book came into your life when you were quite young because you wrote your senior thesis on it, didn't you? Yes,
1: yeah, and that was um, it was it was it was a very very powerful um, again another. Another defining moment or crossroads uh, in my life, and really, what spoke to me was uh, my my thesis was really about, you know, the the Irish um, analogy of the <clears throat> the Israelites being in bondage, coming out of um, ancient Egypt you know, being slaves and coming out of ancient Egypt and the parallels that I found, uh, certainly Joyce going deep into of the Irish mindset of feeling that they were always like the, you know, the stepchild of, of England or the, you know, not really being uh, respected or, or elevated and them having to make their own journey out, um, out of there. Still struggling with that one. And, but it's woven into the consciousness of Ireland. And so it's so, so interesting when people have been oppressed, even if it goes back thousands of years or hundreds of years, there's something in their ancestral follow-through that goes through that, that makes them, you know, it's a, a victim mentality to a certain extent. And so it's not just in the culture, it's in the individual as well, which is why it's so important to keep moving and to keep moving from from victim to survivor to thriver in all aspects of our life.
0: Looking at the order of that book and reading your description and comparing it to the next book on your list, you know, there's there's a correlation there. I mean, the Ulysses story, it's a story that has continued throughout time. You know, it's a never ending story. It might end over there and it begins over there. The fifth book, which is The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B.
1: Dubois. Now- I, I, do, I, do just wanna, I do just wanna say something. Uh, someone in the chat is saying, will we be able to access the top 10 list somewhere? It's on the No BS- uh, Spiritual website. Book Club
0: website. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, so, it is, so, yeah.
1: So yeah. Uh, what is that website so everyone can, can um, go there?
0: At the moment, it's on my website, which is sedgebeer.com. And just click on the tab that says, no BS. You know, there
1: go. spiritual go. Club, Thank you, Cornelia. And you will
0: find Cornelia's David G's. That in there for us. Yeah, Perfect. yeah. You'll find his list there. And, and I mean, they're brilliant, brilliant descriptions. I mean, you gave the longest descriptions anyone's ever given, and they were so thorough. Oh.
1: <laughs> no, oh, it was sure. a good thing.
0: It was a good thing. <laughs> Because most people just want to dash it off in two lines. But it, I mean, it was really, really fascinating reading it because some of the, you know, some of these books, several of these books I haven't read. So it gave me
1: such a good feel for them um, that I want to read them. So well, hopefully, yeah, thing. hopefully I've inspired you to, to read some of the books on this list. Add,
0: add to my list. Yes, indeed. So number five, uh, this was published in 1903 and uh you say that um web was one of the greatest scholars in our history and the first black person to receive a doctorate from harvard and i had never heard of him at all so i'm you know especially grateful for you bringing this one to my attention so tell us when this came into your life and how it impacted you
1: yeah this was um this was brought into my life at a, at, a, at a very early age probably I was I was too young to even even grasp it, but it's one of those books that I have consistently uh returned to over and over. His name looks like it's Dubois, but it's W E B Du Bois is how oh, that's um, okay is, is, so, is how he is how he pronounced it. Okay. Um but everyone mispronounces it because you would see Dubois and you would think Dubois. Um, French, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, you know, or or Cajun or or something like that. So yes, um, this came into my life um, at at a at an important uh, time uh, for me. I was I was uh, raised in a in a uh, in a black family growing up, and so this is a really um, powerful to me because I had no idea what con- the concept of consciousness even was. And now I would say, if someone says, "What's consciousness?" I would say, "Oh, awareness." And I would just, you know, in enough. But of course, we could go. We could talk for months about, you know, what is consciousness. And um, he was really the first person to to put out there that um, that there are people, uh, certainly that, that 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 black people uh, are living with this concept of a double consciousness. They're seeing themselves as a black person in a white world, and they're seeing themselves as um, members of whatever society that they're living in. And of course, in more modern times, we could extrapolate that into, um, if, you're, um, if you're part of the you know, uh, uh, LGBT community, you see yourself as, as separate and distinct. You're living with that consciousness in a, in a uh, heterosexual world. Uh, you can see yourself as a woman. Uh, certainly, if you're working in a in a in a in a male-dominated society, and suddenly we start to we can start to really see ourselves that these the concept of dual um, dual consciousness really impacts um, all of us, especially if we have uh, a certain identity that we have um, embraced at at some point in our life. And that's, you know, certainly now there's a lots of conversation about gender and about identity and about, you know, who gets to call themselves, you know, whatever they want to, to call themselves. Um, interestingly enough, when they do the census here in the United States and they come to your door, you know, of all the thing, you know, they can tell that you're a male or a woman, you know, pretty much uh, by your presenting yourself. But again, you get to identify how you want. So there are people who might obviously look like a man, but they are identifying as female and 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 vice versa, you know, w- whatever that looks like. And um the, the phrase um uh Latino in the United States, you know, our southern border is Mexico, um, and below that South America, pretty much everyone's speaking Spanish uh except for Brazil, they're speaking Portuguese, but you know, an entire world is below our southern border, and yet being Latino is one of those things, you know, anyone here right now, if you suddenly felt, no, I'm in my heart, I'm, I'm Latino, you, you would you could check the box that says I'm, I'm Latino. So we really are entering the age where people's self, um, self-description of their identity is the one that matters as opposed to the one that's being viewed. Now, of course, if you are um, a person of color, you're obviously a person of color, but there are very, very, very light-skinned people who are also, you know, they're Black, and they identify as Black, and Mm. no one would necessarily, you know, even know that. Um, Just the concept uh, that, that Du Bois would start sharing this conversation in the 1900s, when in the United States, Blacks couldn't vote. You know, women couldn't vote either, but even when women got the right to vote, it was really white women who who pushed that forward. Um, and it was, you know, more about white female uh, enfranchisement as opposed to, you know, women's um, uh, suffrage. And so, you know, Du Bois is, you know, certainly bold, uh, a brilliant scholar, You've written so many other books, um, as well, but I think, you know, he sort of like laid the groundwork for us just to understand people at a deeper level. And I think this is an important aspect of emotional intelligence that, that Daniel Goleman has talked about. That could have been on my list, something that Daniel Goleman mm. wrote, who's the, who's popularized the concept of, of emotional intelligence. But we need to understand that Uh, that someone's going through a different reality than we are in every single moment and we can't paint everyone with our reality and we can we can have that arrogance we can have that imposition but if we don't really take a step back then we're not really getting them at a at a deeper um, at a deeper level and so you know Du Du Bois spoke about you know, that you moving through life, feeling your two-ness. Here I am talking about yoga and union and oneness. And here's someone in the early 1900s writing about the the two-ness of reality. How impossible would it be for someone like Du Bois to read the Bhagavad Gita, experience that oneness, he would have to transcend his dual consciousness to come into that. And similarly, you know, I find that same thread running through, uh, through Ulysses. That's really what Joyce was talking about. Yeah. You know, you could say, you know, I'm a, <clears throat> I'm a person in, on the global stage, you know, but I'm also this other thing that I always, it's my lens that I look through life um, with. And we need to, if we really want to know someone, we sort of have to be willing to acknowledge they have a totally different lens, a lens we've never looked through, a lens we'll never look through, uh, a lens we have just no capacity to even look through. And that can really be our own expansion of consciousness, realizing that, that other people are looking at, you know, 7.6 billion people on the planet and 7.6 billion lenses. Even if we say, oh, no, I, I have the same belief system as you. I voted for the same person as you. I, you know, all this, there's a beautiful red-tail hawk flying overhead right now, um, which is one of the reasons I love working outside here. Um, and if you know what what the the, the meaning of seeing a red tailed hawk flying over your head, it could just be, oh, there's a red tailed hawk flying over your head. Um, but I think I think it probably has some spiritual meaning for this moment. Um, and so I think that um, Du Bois should be read by everyone um because he's coming from the most um really from the depth of his soul he's not trying to to school us he's not trying to educate us he's not trying to impose his will on us he's not trying to be right he's not trying to teach us he's not woke and trying to convince us he really speaks from his soul to 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 whoever the reader is in that moment and i think it will awaken not just your deeper understanding of um, to have, you know, uh, that there needs to be so much more respect for for everyone that we that 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 we can't be colorblind. Color is real. It's 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 real, um, and it's impacting how people live their lives, and the opportunities that they get, and how they're treated, and you know, so so many other aspects. And I think he was that. You know, without the boys, there's no Martin Luther King. Without the boys, there's no Mandela. Without the boys, there's no John Lewis. We can go on and on with what that looks like. Um, but for someone so brilliant and so, you know, so scholarly, um, so sharp, um, really had had has had a lasting impact on me my my whole life. And I have read that book probably every mm, every ten years. Like that. Mm that cycles in. Oh, by the way, I just wanna let you know, Sandy, when I, once I made this list, I was like, uh, you know what? Some of these books I haven't really checked out recently. So I reread everything. Reading Ulysses list just made my head hurt because I hadn't read it in about eight years. Um, but I went through the entire list and I figured if, other, if I'm gonna tell people these books are important to me, I'm gonna read them all right now. Some of them I'm reading daily, but others like, you know, so I brought them all um, back into my universe. was that the reward for the task? (laughs) Yes it was, yes it was. A lot of other things did not get done but that got done and it was a powerful reward. So thank you, I appreciate that. Oh
0: wow, my pleasure. Um, You know one of the things that touched me about what you wrote about this was and you said that you've etched Du Bois's words from the souls of black people pretty deeply into your heart and you you quote a couple of things but one of the things that uh, I thought was a beautiful reminder, was when you said that Du Bois asks us all to consider, do you flow your most authentic expression in your thoughts, words, and actions, in your relationships, in your career, in conversations with friends, in social media postings, or do you pander and compromise and virtue signal so others like you accept you or don't get their feathers ruffled? And You know, this is something that I think all of us, all of us struggle with. And we're seeing this now because so many people feel they cannot say what they're really thinking and feeling because there's so much tension out there, you know, that they're just going to be jumped on and they they really can't afford to offend anyone.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, we can afford to offend everyone. We just don't think we can. Yes, exactly. that's That's the... Thing. And then we have to, you know, I mean, we're in an age of cancel culture or in an age where, you know, no one gets off the hook or people can just be like obliterated overnight. We're also in an age where people feel they need to, to comment and opine on their, the snack that they had, you know, last evening. So when we look at stuff like that, um, sometimes it can be maddening. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, Um, but again, as you said that uh, his message is that if we're going to serve the world, we must be strong, we must be clear, we must be open hearted, we must be courageous, etc, etc, and, and this is such a timely reminder, so I'm thanking you for giving me that reminder. You're welcome. So number six, and this book is probably up there with the top 10 of the top 10s. You know, certain books come up again and again and again, and it's very easy to see why. The Four Agreements, A Practical Guide to Personal Freedom by Don McGill Love this book, absolutely love this book. So tell us when you read it and what was happening in your life at that time that this book may have
1: helped you with. Yeah, well, <clears throat> the, um, the mid to late 90s uh, was a powerful literary uh, time for uh, straight talk spirituality. Um, yes. Uh, this book came first. This book, I believe, was written in 1995 by Don Miguel Ruiz. In 1996, Deepak Chopra wrote Seven Spiritual Laws of Success. And in 1998, I think, um, Eckhart Tolle wrote The Power of Now. So suddenly you have this, this, this burst of, of not to say there wasn't a, a lot of other spiritual commentary going on, but this sort of um, sort of launched the acceptance from say 95 to 99, this like next wave of of people taking um, spiritual insights and weaving them into our lives. And you know, one of the beauties of Dom Miguel's book is it doesn't come off as a spiritual book comes off as like, hey, here's some, here's four great rules to live your life by. Of course, these four great rules were taken um, directly from Buddha's teachings, um, the, eight, the Noble Eightfold Path, <clears throat> but distilled down. And the book is also, you know, it's a pretty thin, you know, it's an easy read. And the fact that also it's like, just by taking only four steps, be impeccable with your word we could all benefit from that don't take anything personally we're all we're all taking everything personally on, on a constant basis <laughs> don't make assumptions so often there's miscommunication because we just assume what somebody else said or or, or did or we assume another person's intentions um, and lastly always do your best and so we could say even always do your best goes back to chapter two verse 48 of the Bhagavad Gita yes you know, a a mere 2,300 years before then, you know, to establish yourself in the present moment and then perform your action, you know, get still and then be brilliant. And so just these four simple, they could be fortune cookies, uh, you know, the, the messages inside a fortune cookie. They're so concise. And I think that is really Don Miguel's greatest achievement. A lot of people say, oh, and there's other stuff he's written and like, yes prolific and beautiful and 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 amazing um and he's a friend of mine so i of course i'm saying (laughs) i'm not saying kind things about him just because you know i I know him but if you can come up with like four statements that can live so um concretely you know if i asked everybody right now okay, tell me the 10 commandments, they've existed for 6,000 years or so, and everyone's heard them and everyone's had them and people have, you know, whatever, we could probably come up with three. But, you know, you say, if people know about the four agreements, it's like so clear, so concise. What beautiful messages in every single, every single moment that we could just, you know, even have as just like little mantras floating through our, uh, through our heads. So whether these are coming from the Buddha You know, because even Mm. if I said to you, okay, what are the what's the noble eightfold path? You know, you might go, uh, right speech, right action, and then forget the other six. But here, boom, you know, um, he really lays out in such a such a clear and concise way four ways to live your life that you can probably fold into every conversation, every interaction and every even conversation that you're having with yourself. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this is the kind of book that just brings me to silence because there's nothing to say about it because it is, and it's true. And that's it. You you just can't argue with it. I'm very conscious of your time. So we're going to go a bit quicker now. Book number seven. This is a surprise and you Tell everybody it's going to be a surprise, Dominion, The Power of Man, The Suffering of Animals, and The Call to Mercy by Matthew Scully. And you say definitely not the book you expect from the former speechwriter of President George W. Bush.
1: Yeah, I'm, it's almost impossible to be reading the, knowing that, and I, and I, I think it might even say that on the back cover, you know when talking about you know just his 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 quick little little bio um, it's impossible to read the book without always having that in your awareness uh that again we we are so much more than just our last job if it, <laughs> if that would define us um, this is a this is a book that um uh, you know, I talk about David Simon you know, being such an important mentor to me um, and actually December 7th was his birthday. Um, he's, he's since passed on eight years mm-hmm. ago, but he was a vegetarian since he was 17. And I had gone through stages of being vegan and vegetarian and only eating meat and only eating animals and only eating seafood and you know, do, doing whatever. And he and I spent every day uh, with, with each other for, for about a 10 year period. And uh, our offices were 15 feet apart, and he he was my closest friend um, during that period of time. And you know, we would go out, and I would be eating, you know, uh, chicken sandwich, and he'd be eating, you know, some beans or something like that. And you know, we'd finish our meal, and we'd have, just have a conversation, and he'd say to me. Um, so how did, you, how did you feel about eating that chicken sandwich? And I said,
0: yeah,
1: it was pretty good, but I feel a little conflicted, you know? I feel conflicted that like an entire animal had to die so I could have a, you know, lunch. Um, and he said, well, it's good to be conflicted. It's good to be conflicted. Why don't you check out this book? And he gave me that book. And, you know, I've read that book probably, I read it in, in succession, like 10 times in a row over like a period of a month and then you know every so often after that but that was really it's not a, you know I, I I have problems with books that preach because I'm um I'm a rebel to a certain extent or or or, I, or at least I resist when someone's telling me what the way should be I usually run very hard in the other direction mm-hmm. um so he doesn't preach in this book he's pretty much lays out you know here's Here's all the wild animals, and he talks about you know the animals throughout throughout the world who are in the wild, and how that's if we wanted in any moment we could extinguish it. any animal on the planet. We as humans have that ability. He talks about factory farming, and the reality, you know, of it because we're not really if, if we knew we were buying piglets when we buy a, a package that's sealed in cellophane. Um, you know or or baby sheep or things along those lines you know we'd probably be a little more reflective on that moment but this book um, I think as I mentioned when I said to you this book really just made me more mindful um, that I have a choice what do I want to eat in every moment and do I want that to be you know another sentient being and there's even studies that say that that cows are even smarter than dogs, um, you know, or, and we, you know, and so we see all, so all the different types of animals in their places throughout the world. And we should know always in every moment that we have dominion over them, that we can extinguish them if we choose to. And they're sort of like a, we're doing that fairly effectively. Um, but a friend of mine just uh, invested in a company that makes synthetic meat. So they take a cell from a living animal and then they cultivate synthetic meat from it. And I think that will be our future.
0: Yes, that, you know, if, I you agree. Need,
1: if you need to eat the meat of a cow, then no cow died uh, yeah. to create that that experience. But I think, you know, we, we just should, people just in general, I'm not gonna tell anyone how they should eat or what they should eat. Um, and even at the end, Uh, at the very end, I'm gonna buzzkill this, but at the very end, Scully says, you know, this hasn't made me. Writing this entire book and doing all my research hasn't made me, you know, um, a vegan. But it's made me very, very aware of when I eat another animal and when I don't, so. And the way we
0: treat them too.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yes, deserves its place on your list. So number eight, the Ten Commitments by your mentor, David Simon.
1: Yes. Well, David Simon's premise was Ten Commandments are always thou shalt, thou shalt not. And people obviously over the years have, have defied that mm-hmm. in, in a certain sense. Uh, we've all defied that. We've all you know, resisted it or, or not bought into it. Um, and why would that be? These are certainly commandments that God gave Moses and when they're supposed to be the foundations of every single civilization, well, why do people break that rule? You know. Um, and I think that's a, that was an important thing. So David Simon began writing sort of like the flip side of that. He said, commandments are always someone wagging their finger at you and it's something external coming at you. Whereas commitments are sacred contracts that we're making with our souls. And we're more likely to keep those. So I thought that was so beautiful. Uh, mm-hmm. ten commi- yeah. you know, so the 10 Commitments is a great book. It's a, you know, if you've David Simon's written a lot of books. <clears throat> His other book, Free to Love, Free to Heal that I really recommend to people. Very, very cathartic and healing, um, you know, for heart healing, but this sort of takes this can get woven into to every aspect of our lives as well. Again, I, I consider this another universal book on the list yes. that can apply to anyone in any moment.
0: And you said that after reading it, you made a commitment to make daily commitments at the end of your meditation
1: practice. Absolutely. I wasn't doing that before. And now it's part of my, it's part of my morning jam. Do I always adhere to the commitment? No, but a higher likelihood that when I'm going against it, I'll be like, oh, or when I'm doing nothing, you're like, hey, didn't I, didn't I say I was gonna be more? And it sort of sparks me to be a better version of myself. Mm. Yeah.
0: Number nine is a book that I was really pleased to see because um, you know, I love this work, Nonviolent Communication, A Language of Life, Marshall B. Rosenberg.
1: Yes, well, that's, um you know, so powerful. I've taught four-day workshops just on that. Yeah. So this is something that, you know, and, and and probably, you know, I could go to a workshop and experience it for, for for a year. These are the same teachings that have been brought to bear, um, quite honestly, in um I mean we can we can take our pick of what that looks like would have been brought to bear in, in Middle Eastern peace talks. These are conversations that Palestinians are having with uh, Israelis right now. They're using these tools. We will, you know, in right now, our society is so bifurcated. You know, if we think about that, um, the, the, the polarization of everything that goes on. And really what um, this brings into the conversation, the teachings of Dr. Rosenberg um, are that if we can show up with a certain amount of, of uh, dignity, there's a higher likelihood, respect and dignity from both sides of, of the equation, there's a higher likelihood we're going to get our needs met. And we're not great communicators to begin with. And we don't usually, you know, we think people's going, people are going to, to read our minds. David Simon used to call that you're ESPing all over yourself. When you're like, well, if you, you know, if you loved me, you'd know what I need. Um, you know, we don't we feel that in a certain way. But the reality is, no, we have to sort of articulate our needs. And if we are able to articulate them and express them uh, in a way that does not carry um, past laden emotional charge, then there's a high, higher likelihood that our, that our needs will actually um, be met. Yeah, for
0: sure. Yeah. I've always said, you know, the bottom of every argument is a misunderstanding. We just don't articulate clearly what it is we want and we need and wish to happen. And we're all doing it to each other. Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah fabulous, fabulous work. Really, really do have a lot of admiration and respect for that. There was a lot more we could have said about that one, but we won't. We'll move on to number 10, which is Osho. And Osho comes up a lot as well. Absolute Do you pronounce it Tao or Dao? Um, I pronounce it Dao. Dao. Absolute Dao. Talks on fragments from Dao by Lao Tzu. And this is Osho's version.
1: Yeah. Well, an interesting thing about Osho is uh, that Osho really didn't wasn't a book writer, although he's got you know 50 books to his credit. But he spoke every single day. He held satsangs every single day uh, throughout his entire life, except for periods where he was full on silence. And uh, fascinatingly enough, they were all transcribed. People took notes or recorded them. And uh, Absolute Tao is a series of his lectures, uh, beautifully edited. And, you know, Osho, I I saved um, Osho for, I hadn't hadn't remembered, uh, Absolute Dao was number 10. Um, I saved Osho for number 10 because he is so controversial. There's even a Netflix um, Mm. documentary, I'll call it, um, called Wild, Wild Country. And, you know, it pretty much, you know, bashes him. And Osho was uh, distinctly imperfect. But I believe in his heart, he was a rascal. And his mission was to always poke everyone out of their comfort zone. So when I'll talk about Osho and someone will send me an email, how dare you talk about Osho? I'm like, well, he's accomplished his mission. He clearly he pushed you out of his comfort zone. Um, and, you know, there's a lot that we could, you know, they once said to Osho, Osho, what's the deal? You know, you tell everyone to, that they shouldn't care about um, their money. And meanwhile, you have 100 Rolls Royces that you're driving around on your ashram, and he would say, "That is not true. I do not have a hundred. I have eighty-seven. I hope to have a <laughs> hundred." Um, he was so totally, um, at times, um, innocent and childlike and and authentic. Uh, he slept with, you know, hundreds of his. Um, he is said to have slept with hundreds of his followers. He, and he never denied it. He was open. Now, of course, you know he was using his power to assert it over his followers, so we could say clear case of you know sexual abuse on some way. Um, but he 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 never hid that, and so that which is distinctly different from what's going on in our in our current environment. Uh, uh, but those things take away from some of the brilliance that he provided. Yeah. And so I'm always torn, um, again, message or messenger, you know, it's do, do we, how do we, and I put this book on the list because I wanted people to, in Osho style, to be a little conflicted. What do we do with, with, with stuff that's brilliant, but it was written by someone that we have an issue with? You know, mm. I'm, I'm conflicted with, with, with certain works or certain music of people that I used to respect, and, you know, heroes who we've knocked off pedestals. So Osho never said, um, follow me. He never said, I'm God, he, you know, he was, he was rascally. Like I said, if, he, if, if his commentary, like if he wrote a review of his book, he would say, you fool, you're reading that book. You should throw it into the fire right away and never think about it ever again. You know, that's, that's him, but, you know, Osho's, you know, um, viewpoint and his, um, philosophy and the, the teachings that, um, that he shared with so many, um, so many people in his world, um, I think are valuable. And I think they will, they have stood the test of time. He died in the, in the nineties. And I think, um, I don't know, I think Absolute Tao is one of those books where you read it, you get touched by it. Um, It sparks, you know, he he speaks about loneliness versus aloneness. He speaks about um, trying to be something that you're not. He speaks about um, meditation in in all its various permutations and all the the real world struggles that we have. So Osho, uh, controversial, he'll always be controversial. But he really spoke so much about the power of that the answers to everything are resting inside of you. And you don't have to go someplace for them. You don't have to seek them someplace else. You just have to allow yourself to connect to that truth that rests within. And so um, I would recommend, you you know, his book, Uh, book of secrets I think it's 1100 pages Uh, you don't you know I would say don't start with that one But if you're interested in Osho absolute Tao is a powerful amazing and very very special book that will really awaken you and it's a snapshot of time because it's a a series of his satsangs just over over a certain period of time where I think he was probably at his peak
0: Mm. Well, and you said that he was a, you know, you do consider him a great teacher, even if you don't agree with everything he said, but he always forced you to pay attention to what matters in life. And what's interesting given what we've been discussing about some of the books that have gone before is that he did create his own 10 commandments and uh, you list the 10th one in your list. Do you want to share that with us? Uh,
1: sure. Um you know, his 10 commandments are all about, you know, if someone's telling you they have the answer, run away from it. There is no real truth, you know, other than, um, other than God. Um, He was also uh, anti-religion, which of course Hmm. tweaks people on a whole nother level. Um, But uh, he was pro having a connection to the divine, but he felt that, structured religion was really just another uh, shackle Um, but his 10th commit his 10th commandment is do not search that which is is stop and see
0: Mm. that's a, a great one to end that list on and what I notice about your list this is the first time I've noticed it is that there is it's almost as if there's a piece of every single book that you've listed in every single other book that you've listed. You know, you can join the dots all the way through. Familiar threads. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Lovely. Okay. So if you had uh, a young student just starting out, um, wanting you to be their mentor, which of these 10 books would you give them to begin with?
1: Well, uh, young is um, relative, so I'm not sure. But um, I would Let's say beginner, you know, for the beginner, I, I would say a real, real loving and easy pathway is the four agreements. Because it's not even seven, it's four. And they're pretty basic and they can be applied in, in any moment. And probably, and and what Don Miguel talks about, in the beginning of that, before we even get to the four agreements, he talks about the concept of domestication. And so if someone's really young, they're probably in that process of domesticating themselves in that moment. So that might be a a great opportunity for them to go like, oh, I'm doing that right now. I'm 17 years old and I'm I'm acting a certain way to please other people. And I'm sort of dimming my light over here because Other people aren't fans of it or things along those lines. So I would say starting on some type of journey, uh, the four agreements can sort of give you a a beautiful framework, um, some really deep insights. And I would think that when you finish it, you would launch out into another one of these books as well.
0: For sure. I do love the work of uh, Don Miguel and his sons. In fact, we've got uh, Don Miguel Jr. joining us in two weeks time. Oh, my God. Um, So that, you know, and I love his books, too. Now, the keywords, I asked you to give me some keywords and phrases that you would use to describe yourself. And you came up um, and these are meant to be sort of fun, not just Mm -hmm. the official bio stuff. And you said the owl, dark chocolate connoisseur.
1: TV binge watcher, and Peaches Teaches. What is Peaches Teaches? Uh, 12 years ago, I adopted a, um, uh, a mix between a a Maltese and a Yorkshire Terrier. They call those Morkies. But I adopted uh, a dog from uh, an LA shelter and her name, I named her um, Peaches the Buddha Princess. And so people have asked me, you know, who's the greatest spiritual teacher? You know, you've met His Holiness the Dalai Lama and you worked with Deepak and you met Eckhart Tolle and like all these other great sages and you're friends with Wayne Dyer, like, who's the one? And I always say, is the Buddha Princess. In, in our 12 years together, she has taught me more than the, the wisest sage out there. Uh, Our first year together, we didn't even speak. Everything was like a a silent thing. I didn't speak. She didn't speak. We meditated together. We still meditate together every single morning. And she teaches me consistently. Her biggest lesson for me is resist nothing and you will receive unconditional love. Like what's the reason that we're not just feeling the love in every moment? Because we're resisting so much stuff. We're resisting the moment, we're resisting what is, we're resisting COVID, we're resisting like everything that's happening. If we resisted just a little bit less, the walls would come down and we'd receive more unconditional love. So that's my Peaches Teaches. Good,
0: okay, that explains it. Um, normally I ask someone to give me one more, something that only you know their closest friend would know about them, but I think this serves serves the purpose for that so peaches teaches it is um we are almost out of time we've gone over the time that we said uh you know an hour and 15 but there is a question um and i wonder whether you can just give us a couple of extra minutes to answer there's been lots and lots of comments and there probably are several more questions but i'm just going to choose the one and that is um from francis who says i love the common sense and approach of sharing especially when it comes to our day-to-day realities Some respected teachers teach that we need to release our ego, and other respected teachers teach it's a vital part of us. Would you please share your belief about the ego?
1: Yeah, sure. Not to um, knock, um, you know, probably Eckhart Tolle is one of the most um, um, popular teachers about ego and how we can dissolve it and transcend it. Um, my definition of ego is it's your sense of self. Now I could get into Adi Shankara's seventh century description of the layers of life and his definition of, of, of ego. Um, but ego, you know, his definition of ego is it's, um, it's stuff we think we own. It's all the stuff in our life that we think we own. So our belief systems, our hairstyle, our religion, our food choices, our like you know, all those things. My definition is it's just your sense of self. Like when you look in the mirror, what, whatever you see, you know all the stuff that you're not revealing to the world. You know all the stuff that you're boldly announcing to the world. The stuff that we are but we hide It's called our shadow self. It's important that we own that. Um, and we could say, oh, it's nobody else's business. Oh, okay, you could do that as well. But I believe that um, the ego is, you know, it's all the labels and all the identity that we have claimed for ourselves. You know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I vote this way. I eat this kind of food. I listen to this kind of music. I believe in this Uh, this is important that's not important you know it's sort of like if you put a bumper sticker on the back of your car it's the stuff that you'd be willing to you know that you claim that you own that you think you own in reality we own nothing you know we don't own our house probably the bank owns it we don't own our car probably the bank owns it uh we don't own our kids never never did never will uh, we don't, you know, there's all whole list of stuff that we think we own. We even think we own the lane that we're driving in, right? Someone crosses into my lane and we get like really defensive or angry or someone gets too close or too far. So there's a, there's a lot of ownership that we, that we put out there. The I, me, mine of life. That's, that's the ego. Um, I don't think it's possible for us. Is it constricting? Absolutely. I don't think it's possible for us to have no ego. Even if I had the ego, I've let go of my ego. That would be like another statement of my ego, Mm. (laughs) saying that I've let go of that. So I believe that we can't actually, I think we should pay attention to the labels and the identification that we do. Are we doing it again for someone else's benefit or do we really feel that way? Ultimately, if we go back, 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 to the most ancient teachings, you know, the most ancient teachings are, you know, aham brahmasmi, I am the universe. And that every other thing in our ego is actually um, an illusion. It's something that, it's a construct that we've made, you know, so that we look smarter or more attractive or more friendly, or, you know, like these are all interactions. But the reality is, as long as we're sealed in this flesh casing for the span of a lifetime, We're gonna need to figure out some way, what's our persona? How are we gonna flow what's inside of us into the outside world? So my personal feeling on the ego is, um, I'll I'll give the perfect example. Wayne Dyer defined ego as E-G-O, edging God out. And so it's in that moment where you see yourself as so distinctly separate, that's probably not the best expression of your ego. When you see yourself as one with everything and unseparated from everything, still self-definition, it's still your ego, but I think it's a more expanded understanding of of who you are in that moment. Hopefully that answers.
0: I think that's a great answer. Thank you so much. David G, there's lots and lots of messages in the chat room of people who have really enjoyed listening to you today, talking about your books. They're going to add these books to their lists as well, which is great. Let's get everybody reading. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your current 10 best spiritual books. And um, what can I say? It's been a
1: pleasure. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me. It was challenging when I first started writing it, I was like, oh my God, this is a really big assignment. I haven't been given an assignment like this in a, in a long time, but it was such a joyous assignment and it really um, forced me to, to answer that question. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Thank you for raising the vibration of books. Where would we be without books? And, exactly. um, and thanks for, for, to everyone who, who showed up for this. I didn't know if it was just going to be you and me, Sandy, chatting about my book list. Um, but uh, thank you, everyone, who's, who's taken the time out of your day and night to, uh, to hang out with us.
0: Thank and, you. Uh, and we and will listen. be sharing this everywhere. Within the week, we just tidy up a few things, put some bumpers on it, and share it all over the place. So um, yeah, it beautiful. will get seen great. And if this inspires people to read these books, then it's done its job. Yeah. So well. that's it. If you want to know more, if you want to get heavily meditated with David G, check out his website, davidg.com. You can learn so much there and you can also download all kinds of things, including the first chapter of his latest book, Sacred Powers. And thank you everyone for joining us. It's been a pleasure to have your company tonight. We're here uh, every Wednesday at the same time doing another one of these interviews. Uh, so free, you know, feel free to join us anytime you want. And we'll be back again next week and I'll see you then. Thank you.